0: Have you been zombified by pregnancy or placentas or babies or children? Any of those things? Welcome to the Zombified Podcast, your source for fresh brains. I'm your host, Athena Actipus, psychology professor at ASU and chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance.
1: And I'm your co-host, Dave Lundberg-Kenrick, Media Outreach Program Manager and Brain Enthusiast.
0: Mmm, brains. Mm-hmm. And today also, placentas.
1: Mmm, they're like the brains of the uterus.
0: <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> <All right. laughs> yeah, so the placenta is actually. It's an organ that is the same genetically as the baby, like the fetus. It's not a mo- like an organ of the mom genetically.
1: It's okay. an organ of the baby. Cool.
0: Yeah. And
1: so then they take over
0: the mom? Yeah, exactly. Interesting. So that's what we're going to be talking about today with David Haig, who is a professor at Harvard. He's a biologist who has worked on placentas pregnancy and like parental investment across lots of different kinds of organisms and how awesomely creepy it sometimes is. So what, uh, what's your favorite part? What does he talk about? I think the part where he talks about sharks and shark pregnancy, and I'm not, I'm not going to spoil it by saying what he says about shark pregnancy. I I think you should listen and, and hear for yourself. Cool. Is there any useful uh, take-home advice for either parents or babies or baby sharks? <laughs> and mama sharks and papa sharks. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the, the big picture is really that yes, there is, you know, a lot of there are a lot of aligned interests between parents and offspring, but they're not entirely aligned. There's some conflict that's there and it has evolutionary roots and if we understand it better then i think we could actually do a better job of of managing that conflict in a way that makes our babies not act like shark babies
1: <laughs> all right well that sounds good
0: all right so let's hear from david haig
1: all right i know it's crazy but it seems so logical Try to fight it, but it's something psychological
0: with you. Makes me act the
1: way I do. I'm not trying to be over analytical. Retracing time.
0: you know, I know you. We know each other. I don't even know how long have we known each other?
1: That's a good. It's been a while. Where was it?
0: Well, so I know we knew each other before you came to Vico because
1: Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. You didn't write it. I, I think it was probably uh mm-hmm. evolutionary medicine. It was before yeah. you went to uh before you went to Arizona yeah. you before Ar- I was and, at UCSF. Uh, yeah. No, and I before that, I was at I Penn. was there where you announced your um, that's engagement right. to Carlo. That's that right. Was, you I mean, were like
0: sitting at our table uh, when yes. the... So that...
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: I I remember Carlo was like, David hey, gave me a kiss on the cheek.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was like... <laughs> I'm, I'm a rat bag. Sorry, that's an Australian... Um, <laughs> what does that mean? Rat bag. Oh, sort of a crazy person kind of. Awesome. Well,
0: you're so perfect for this (laughs) podcast. I've got my crazy hair. You've got your rack bag persona and we'll just we'll just bring it. So yeah, good. Um, So we know each other really well. But the people who are with us today listening, they don't know you. So Ah. maybe you could just in your own words, introduce yourself.
1: I'm a person who prefers no introduction. <laughs>
0: <laughs> who needs no introduction? But <laughs> not prefers no
1: introduction. Yes, yes. I'm Australian, as you um, might be able to detect, though yes. it's hidden beneath a veneer of um, adolescent pretension, um, <laughs> vaguely uh, British hints to the uh, to the accent. Watching too many um, BBC period dramas when I was a young man.
0: Oh, yes.
1: Wow. The sort of upstairs, downstairs sort of thing. <laughs> um, awesome. Now but I wish I could I really do the broad Australian accent, but I uh, can't retain it for the whole of the um, interview. I so.
0: see. <laughs> so you've got your mix of uh, the, no, the British, no, yeah, Australian kind of.
1: And uh, somewhere mid Pacific or something. Who knows? Yeah. Right,
0: right, 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 right. So, um, but you're a professor.
1: I, I profess to be a professor, yes, <laughs> uh, here, here at, uh, who knows why, here at Harvard University. In this beautiful office, which the people on the podcast can't see. It is pretty
0: awesome. It's like a long wooden table and bean, wooden beams yes. and books everywhere.
1: It used to be the malacology collection in the museum. What's malacology? The study of mollusks, so oh. seashells and things like that. But they've all been put underground, and um, oh. I've been—I'm the specimen now. Sitting <laughs> in <this space>. yeah. <laughs> awesome, right? Malacology trivia word for you. <laughs> That's
0: right. Yeah. Yes, yeah. malacology. Um, okay, so we're here in your amazing office in. It's called the Department of Organismal and Evolutionary Biology? No, actually no.
1: Organismic and Evolutionary Organismic. Biology. Sorry. Yeah. Oops. It's okay. <laughs> OED has Organismal, but some committee came up with Organismic. Uh, it once appeared in the Harvard catalog as the Department of Orgasmic. <laughs> oh no, it really? Didn't increase, it didn't increase our enrollment. <laughs> But but, uh, there was a time when the Microsoft spell checker would automatically correct it to orgasmic. Oh, Uh, my God. Yes. Uh, So it it got out there for a while. Uh, (laughs) Nothing to do with my study. Uh, I much prefer mollusks.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. yeah. That reminds me. I had a very, very embarrassing slide once. So I had someone making figures for me and like. Uh, one of the things on the slide should have said public good but for some reason they put pubic good and I gave a very important talk Uh I had that in it and it was so embarrassing and like now I just go through and I try to like in every of my you know old files of my presentations like I'll find that slide and it keeps creeping up and I'm like delete delete (laughs) I don't want that to ever happen ever again so yeah
1: but it's out there on the internet. Somehow. It is, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. So that's the spell check or just people's yeah. errors and then they. These propagate. zombie memes. That's right, like, exactly. Yes, yeah. 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 Okay, so we're here at Harvard in your amazing office and you have studied all sorts of really kind of crazy things yeah. that happen in biology, things that kind of defy a lot of our intuitions about mm-hmm. how organisms work. Work, yep. Yeah. Um, and in particular, I think the thing we'll sort of focus on today, but we don't have to just talk about that, is maternal-fetal conflict. Conflict.
1: Yeah, pregnancy.
0: Yeah. So how did you start studying? How did you get into this sort of question about maternal-fetal conflict. What was your entry point into it? Well,
1: this is going to be tedious for your audience, but uh, I did my PhD on um, parent-offspring relations in seed development. Um, So, so
0: so you're saying that plants have babies
1: too? Yes. Yeah. You know, they have an embryo attached to the mother that produces um, structures that are absorbing uh, nutrients from the mother, you know, come to think of it. We just rather like plants, really. You know, hmm. a, a baby's a bit like a, a seed uh, developing there. And, uh,
0: okay. So I have to ask because, you know, when I think about like the evolution of life, I think maybe I'm just very mammal centric, but I'm like, oh, mammals, like they came up with this idea of parental investment. But now I realize I'm like completely no, no, wrong. No, That's no, not right. really yeah, yeah. how it works.
1: I, I, I have a course I call Vertebrate Viviparity. Uh, which was chosen for the alliteration uh, (laughs) and it looks at um the many origins of live birth and pregnancy Uh, it's probably evolved about a hundred times in um, lizards and snakes so that's where the action what pregnancy
0: evolved yeah how many
1: hundred there's only one in mammals but if you want to do the origin of um, live birth and pregnancy um, lizards and snakes or squamates, if you want to be um, zoologically correct, is where the action is. But my my favourite uh, lecture in that course is actually on sharks. So uh, the majority of sharks give live birth and uh, become pregnant. Uh, and the great white shark is a is a nice example. Uh, so they have a, it's about a 10 month pregnancy similar to humans, mm. but they're uh, the mother just continues to ovulate the whole way during pregnancy, and the fetuses sit there and they eat egg breakfasts every day. What? Uh, and they can eat, you know, hundreds, maybe a thousand eggs during the the pregnancy, um, and that's the way they get full crazy. of yolk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, in the the sand tiger shark, uh, they don't uh, uh, they don't just stop at. Um, at eating eggs, a uh, practice, uh, here's another word, the Adelpho Delpho is your brother and phage is to eat. Oh. Uh, or to use a more descriptive term, intrauterine embryonic cannibalism. And so um, the fetuses eat each other and only one survives in each um, uterus. And that's the one that's uh, born.
0: Wow. So basically, there's selection in the womb for cannibalism of siblings and whoever is, like, the best at eating their siblings.
1: presume, or who gets the start on the other one. Right. Yeah. They, they start off eating... Well, you know, if they, if they left their siblings there, they'd be competing for all these eggs uh-huh. being ovulated, and so you so- clean them out first and then you get... Um, you get all the goodies so uh,
0: if you're a shark it's like you start your life like in the zombie
1: apocalypse although oh, this is uh, one <laughs> it's like
0: cannibalism and this
1: is, this is the okay another technical term this is the lamniform sharks So okay. they're, the, they're the uh group uh to which the great white shark and the thresher shark belong there are other um sharks that develop placentas um all of the rays give life birth but there, they um, do uterine lactation. Uh, they produce uterine they produce you know nutrient rich fluids that are secreted into the uterus, and uh, the the embryo is just sitting there and swallowing all that uh, uterine milk. Uh, so they have quite uh, for for sharks and rays quite quick uh, pregnancies.
0: Wow. Well, and so it sounds like pregnancy is not. All harmony and sweetness and yeah, yeah. wonderful f- family feelings.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's, it's this is the theory <laughs> of parent offspring conflict. Uh, it's it's my, my my own perception of uh, parent offspring conflict is that um, offspring understand it absolutely. They realize that um, there's not sweetness, light, and harmony in their relationship with the parents, whereas parents. Uh, have the other um, perception. You know, they feel that everything they're doing is for the best of their um, mm. um, children. Uh, natural selection um, selects for maximizing the number of um, surviving successful offspring, mm-hmm. which is a little bit different from maximizing the survival of any particular um, offspring. Mm. and so so
0: that's kind of where it all starts that's where parent offspring conflict starts yeah. is that the survival and well-being of one particular offspring is not exactly the same as maximizing the survival and well-being of all your offspring
1: that's that's right uh, it's it's curious uh, people have trouble with parent offspring conflict because we we love our children mm-hmm. but um, they're, they're very okay with sibling rivalry of, mm-hmm. um competition among brothers and brothers and sisters. And all parent-offspring conflict is um, that competition for uh, maternal or paternal um, care. Um, you know, if, if you take something from the parent, it's not available for the parent to give to other offspring. And so in my mind, um, they're, um, they're very, very similar sorts of concepts. It's right. just that we we tend to portray the the parental, particularly the maternal relationship, as as very um, yeah. as very simple. So you can think, you know, in the case of um, a great white shark, uh, probably not all of those eggs are actually fertilized. Some of them are, but you know, it's a way of um, mm-hmm. using one potential offspring to to, to feed, feed another, another offspring. And, <laughs> And also, and in fact, actually, that's one of the commonest forms of maternal care is uh, because yolk in in an egg is the well, you know, an embryo has all it needs to develop. If you think of a chicken, a mm-hmm. uh, chicken in an egg is sitting there in the yolk. It's the yeah. It's the perfect food. So if you're wanting to provide more food to um to to an offspring, um, feed them eggs. And uh, there are a lot of. Uh, there are quite a number of frogs that do that. And so rather than put their um, tadpoles in a stream where there are a lot of things that would like to eat tadpoles, uh, they might put them in a bamboo stump or in a, high up in a tree in a little tree hollow somewhere where they're protected from predators but uh, there's not much to mm. eat there. And so, um, so the mother will come back and will... Lay eggs periodically to, to feed the mm. um, tadpoles.
0: Because from the mother's perspective, it's better that the siblings eat each other than that some predator
1: eats them. Oh, well, the, the, <laughs> you know, it, if, if these uh, in some cases they're um, fertilized eggs, uh, okay. but in other cases it's just a way of okay. you know it's just like lactation. It's mm. a way of providing mm. uh, nutrients. So it's it's the reuse of uh, existing. Uh, Structures um, yeah. for a new use. Uh, there's a there's a Taiwanese frog that uh, that puts its uh, um, eggs in bamboo stumps. You know, in broken off bamboo stumps, a little pool of water, and so the tadpoles are all waiting there. And when mum comes back to lay an egg, they're like little chicks in the nest. They're all begging <laughs> there, feed me, feed me, feed me. Uh, so uh, yeah, um, you know, if you think about human pregnancy. Uh, there's pretty good evidence that probably the majority of all conceptions um, are lost very early on in um, you know, within the first couple of weeks after conception, Mm -hmm. the, you know, the embryo implants in the, in the lining of the the uterus. And when a woman menstruates, if there's an embryo implanted, um, the embryo is, is flushed out. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a selection going on there to pick um, good quality embryos. So mm-hmm. there's a sort of a, a, testing, um, phase. Interesting. There, yeah. you know, and this is occurring before you would know there's a, a pregnancy, mm-hmm. a more, more yeah, extreme yeah. version of that. Well, it, it's a more obvious version of that is in, uh, in quite a lot of marsupials where, uh, so most, most of, uh, maternal, most of the cost of maternal care is occurring after birth, um, Suckling offspring, providing milk in the the pouch and at birth the the offspring are really, really tiny. So let's let's take an example of the Tasmanian devil, which everybody knows from Bugs Bunny or whatever. Speaking
0: of cannibals. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well they at least bite they they at bite, least bite each other's faces. I'm not sure if they're spaces, actually cannibalistic, yeah. but they're I mean they're the closest organism that we have to like what a zombie apocalypse would look like, right? Yeah, I mean they're yeah, they're, they're but, crazy and they're biting each other's faces, so yeah, yeah, yeah that's
1: that's right. But yeah. uh you know they ooh, I should have done my research before coming here to give you <laughs> the precise. But I right. I I I think they have they have four nipples in the pouch, but uh-huh. they um, they give birth to, um, many more than that offspring, um, 10 or so. And mm-hmm. so there's a, a race and they all race into the pouch to get a nipple. And, um, uh, not all of them those, make it, not all of them yeah. make it. And, yeah. um, actually probably talking cannibalism, you know, the, the mm-hmm. extra ones disappear. And the mm-hmm. most likely uh, possibility is mum that eats the, um, mm-hmm. surplus, um, offspring. And mm-hmm. in, you know, some of the smaller insectivorous marsupials, yes, uh-huh. uh, Right. Mothers actually control the sex of their offspring by selective removal from the pouch. Mm-hmm. So sometimes mothers will eat eat off the nipple her her daughters and wow. will get a right. uh, male so, biased litter or eat her sons and get a female yeah. biased litter.
0: So we've got infanticide. We've got cannibalism. We've already like gone super dark in terms of like what yeah. happens. But so let's go now into the the darkness that we don't even realize in the human womb right like oh, so the whole yeah yeah, I I so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this you know this whole idea of the of parent offspring conflict we we're sort of talking about it earlier yeah, that like yeah. it comes down to this issue of like what is the optimal amount of investment yeah. for the mother and that if, in each offspring and what's the optimal amount of investment from each offspring's perspective and there's yeah. some conflict over that right like the optimal the yeah. optimum that the mom wants to invest is not as high as the optimum that the offspring would want to extract because yeah. mom has multiple offspring right and she's trying to
1: and she's got to care for existing offspring and keep herself healthy and you know there uh, yeah. there are all sorts of opportunity costs there so Uh, I talked earlier about how, and it's a distinctive human feature, that the human embryo is not actually sitting in the uterus, but burrows into the lining of the uterus, and it makes contact with maternal blood vessels. Yeah. And so, during pregnancy, um, maternal physiology is coming under joint um, control because that, um, that embryo, initially very little embryo, but it gets larger and larger is actually secreting lots and lots of hormones into the maternal bloodstream that are taking over maternal physiology, um, to serve its end. It's yeah, can... mobilizing, um, fat reserves from the mother. So very early on, um, it's, it's just trying to, um, so the very, very first hormone that we can talk about is human chorionic gonadotropin, yeah. which is what you look for in a home pregnancy test. Mm-hmm. But essentially what that's doing is it's, It's keeping, um, the maternal ovary pumping out progesterone, which is to, to stop menstruation,
0: progesterone, right? It's like it's promoting
1: pregnancy. Yeah. Right. And you know, if, if the, um, um, the maternal ovary in a, in a normal cycle, it stops producing progesterone and that leads to the shedding of Mm -hmm. the Lining at the uterus at, at menstruation. So, even, once again, that's even that's a from primate the specific. It's, very blocking that. Yeah, it's, it's like hijacking
0: that. the maternal system so that it can stick around.
1: Yeah. And there's, there's strong correlational evidence that those hormones, um, particularly some parts of human chorionic gonadotropin, is also what's responsible for the nausea and um, vomiting that women experience early in pregnancy now. Um, there's much debate is that just a side effect of this hormone being produced in such large amounts or is it adaptive in some way? Mm-hmm. Um, the major adaptive hypothesis is that uh, you know at, very early on when the embryo is forming its its own organs, uh, it doesn't need a lot of nutrients from the mother, but, um, there are dangers for toxic substances that are in the diet, um, mm-hmm. in what the mother's eating. And so one, one hypothesis that Paul Sherman has, um, pushed mm-hmm. Paul Sherman at Cornell is that, uh, this is a, um, you know, putting a mother off her food is in some sense, um, protect, potentially protecting, um, the, the early embryo mm-hmm. from noxious stuff in um, the maternal diet mm-hmm. at a stage where it doesn't need a lot of nutrients to survive uh-huh. um, that tends to go away as uh, it depends on mother feeding to supply nutrients to it yeah now there are a series of all sorts of other hormones that are going into the maternal bloodstream yeah so
0: what are some of those other like mechanisms oh, for example, like ways that
1: growth hormone so you know, all of the growth hormone circulating in the maternal bloodstream mm-hmm. at um, towards the end of pregnancy is coming from the placenta, not from her own body. Mm-hmm. Uh, what it's doing yeah, you so don't maybe really know. should we
0: talk about the placenta for a minute? Like
1: oh, placentas. What yeah. like
0: <laughs> what is a placenta? You know, and is it part of the mother's body or part of the... I know the answer, but I just yeah, want you to no, say no, it. No. Yeah,
1: Well, if you know the answer, <laughs> okay. you, can, you can tell them. I don't need to tell them. <laughs> you know, I consider it relaxed and... Uh,
0: but, yeah, I mean, the fact that the Yeah, placenta... the placenta
1: is an organ, but it's a specific feeding organ of the... Um, derived from, we will give a technical term again, yeah. the conceptus, the right. thing that's conceived. Uh, yeah. so it um, you know, it's a discardable organ that is formed just during the pregnancy to, to be involved in transfer of resources from the mother and also release of wastes into uh-huh. the um, into the mother's bloodstream. Can now, we
0: kind of think of it as like the organ that is there to like zombify the mom?
1: You can think of it that yeah. way. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> but it's it's uh, what what we what we now know is that so. I I briefly alluded that the um, placenta um, actually invades into maternal tissues. So what it does very, very early on is it breaks into maternal blood vessels, um, bringing blood into the the uterus, and it modifies those vessels so that they can't constrict, and it expands their diameter to increase the flow of blood coming to the... um, to the placenta.
0: So it's not just hormonally hijacking mom, it's actually like physically, it's changing the physiology yeah, so that the mom can't help, but provide resources for the offspring through the blood. Yeah,
1: and it's also sending off, it's not just hormones, it's sending into the maternal bloodstream. We now know that uh, there are cells coming from the placenta that are circulating in the yeah. maternal blood. And that they We're can- We're gonna turn- talk to Amy. You're going to talk to, We're Amy, to, talk to Amy, of, Amy in a couple of weeks. I like steal her <laughs> on, on this. But um, basically, um, um, placentally derived cells can get practically anywhere in the mother's yeah. body, and who knows what they're doing. Probably zombifying. Bet, zombifying, yeah. yeah. We, you, you can bet that they're um, changing maternal behavior in ways that are good for that. Uh, that, that uh, Fetus. Yeah. And we know that they just hang around for a long mm-hmm. time. You and know? express
0: genes and all yeah. sorts Yeah. We stuff. know
1: that, you know, once a woman's been, uh, pregnant, as I believe you have been, Athena. Yeah. Yep. at Yeah. At, least, at uh, least three times. At least three <laughs> times. Yeah. So, uh, probably. Oh, oh God. I've
0: got, got a lot of cells. Yeah. You've yeah. got
1: cells from yeah. Vaughan, Monte, and... Avana, Avana, amazing! They're sitting in your body at this uh, moment, uh, yeah. just helping you out at this stage. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, they're uh, all
0: completely helpful. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> <Probably>. well, <laughs>
1: I, I think they probably should be at this stage, at this you know, point. because because Monty's cells sitting in you. The only Th- reason that they would be comp-
0: interest in keeping me alive right now. Yeah, yeah,
1: you're, you're good value, and uh, <laughs> and it's and it's. Uh, I find it hard to imagine that money cells in you can be modifying your behavior in ways to be good to Monty and not to Ivana yeah. and and to to Vaughn. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they don't have a neural system and sensory system, so yeah. you know they've got to be doing or um,
0: or they did that manipulation in the immediate like. Postpartum After, yeah, phase yeah, yeah. and uh, like manipulated the bonding systems, but now we're just wildly speculating, like completely oh, no, wildly no. speculating. Uh, so, <laughs>
1: you know, how personal do you want to get? <laughs> maybe, maybe, not too, uh, maybe not too uh, personal. But uh, yeah. uh, uh, Vaughn's the, the young little, one, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and so he has a he has a different father from the old older two. That's right, and, yeah. And so I can imagine some fairly intense. Um, competition there between, uh, his paternal, uh, paternal genes mm. and those of his older half siblings, right. um, you know, and so that's another part of my, uh, research is yeah. on the internal conflicts within the, uh, within the individual, um, uh, between right. genes of maternal and paternal. Origin. so it's
0: like a micro chimerism zombie apocalypse happening inside me all the time is what you're saying
1: and and with inside those individual <laughs> cells yeah oh yeah, and even in yeah, the cells yeah. right you could yeah. you you think about it uh, you know I I've, I've thought about this actually with 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 partner change you know one of the one of the limits on sibling rivalry mm-hmm. is the the genetic relatedness among uh, the children you mm-hmm. know, on if, if we're talking about uh, full siblings, or as I prefer to say, double half siblings. Uh, <laughs> they have the same mother and father, and uh-huh. on average, um, if you, uh, pick a gene in one of them, it's uh-huh. got a 50% chance yeah. of having a copy
0: yeah. in
1: the other. And that, um, so you can't be too nasty to your, mm-hmm. to your, um, siblings because, uh, in a genetic sense, it can be, um, mm-hmm. do, doing in, um, your, your relatives. But if you think about, uh, a maternal half sibling, you know, so you have mm-hmm. a have a partner change. Um, as far as the uh, existing the maternally derived genes, the genes they get from you, uh, the the younger sibling is just another relative probability of half. But from the point of view of paternally derived genes from your uh, mm-hmm. former former husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, any, any other offspring that you have is just resources. Mm-hmm. That's a non-relative yeah. resource. Unless takeable. there's like
0: some other ways that their fitness is interdependent or their well-being. So like the way I saw this in my house is, you know, they're kids and they love their screen time. And so uh-huh. everyone gets the same amount of screen time every week. And if anyone is misbehaving, they all lose screen time. So...
1: This is zombie mama. <laughs> Are we, are we are we allowed to talk about having kids? Yeah, 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 of Good. course. Yeah, okay. we can yeah, yeah. talk about. Yeah, I, I uh, yes, yeah.
0: yes,
1: you have kids too. I have kids too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've got. Uh, and actually, like you, uh, I, I have three children. One of whom has a has a different, uh, in this case, mother from mm-hmm. the, the other two, and mm-hmm. so these these conflicts can sort of get out there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah,
0: yeah. All right.
1: Back to pregnancy. Yes, yes.
0: Well, and I I definitely want us to have a chance to talk a little little bit about preeclampsia because I think that Ah. is fascinating and crazy and really just like ties into, you know, well, what happens when this conflict escalates? Gets
1: out of control. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So... Maybe, you know, so we were talking about the placenta, right? And like yeah, how yeah. it sets up this resource flow situation. Yeah. Um, so what what is it that happens in late pregnancy that can lead to preeclampsia? And how does it relate so to let's, the placenta? Let's, uh,
1: so, uh, well, what's, it, what's in a name? So um, eclampsia, and I think it comes from the... Um, a Greek word for lightning, or something like that. Uh, oh. this. Uh, so eclampsia was a, a major complication of um, pregnancy that was recognised uh, from from ancient times. So this a woman at the time of delivery um, would um, undergo convulsions, um, mm. fits. Um, you know, there was something going wrong in her um, brain, and so that was hmm. called eclampsia and it became recognised. And
0: that, when did this happen? After birth? Or did oh, you so know?
1: eclampsia is classically immediately after uh, birth. But then okay. it became recognised that uh, most women who experienced uh, eclampsia um, there were all sorts of other problems in their physiology that were existing in the late stages of pregnancy um, the way that this Um, was diagnosed was they developed high blood pressure during pregnancy. Hmm. Um, They also had the appearance of uh, protein started appearing in their urine. Hmm. Um, So the way preeclampsia and so this syndrome was called preeclampsia, which occurred before um, eclampsia. So, uh, so eclampsia is really quite rare, but preeclampsia, you know, can. Perhaps, you know, 5 to 10% of women um, develop high blood pressure and the appearance of protein in their urine towards the end of uh, pregnancy. The appearance of protein in the urine is just evidence of generalized vascular damage in the mother. So the lining of the maternal blood vessels is becoming um, damaged because of um, factors being released by the placenta into the maternal circulation. And one place they're being damaged is in the kidneys. Mm. So the kidneys no longer being an effective um, filter. And so you start having blood proteins leaking out into the urine. And so that's how it's diagnosed. But um, as we've come to understand preeclampsia better, it's, it's evident that that vascular damage in the mother is occurring throughout the maternal system mm-hmm. and um, preeclampsia um, is a major source of maternal morbidity. Pretty well any maternal organ can fail. You can have um, c- cerebral brain effects as in eclampsia. Yeah. You can have kidney failure. You can have liver failure, heart failure whatever. And, and this is
0: happening because of disruptions to the blood flow and yeah. blood and pressure. what
1: and what, what I think is happening is that um, there are placental factors being released into the mother that are actually causing vascular damage, which causes maternal blood vessels to constrict. And that has the effect of channeling more maternal blood to the placenta. So Mm. that, um, you know, the maternal blood supply during pregnancy, blood's being pumped into the body. Some of it's flowing through the placenta and the other's going to the other maternal tissues. Um, it's a sort of high risk strategy of the fetus to increase its Nutrient supply by causing damage in the mother's vasculature. That those vessels constrict because of the damage, and that forces more blood towards the uh, placenta. It's
0: like a super, super high-stakes temper tantrum.
1: Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's the perfect analogy. I'll, I'll, I'll use it <laughs> sometime. A temper tantrum would be about right. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. And, and like a temper tantrum, you know, I need something and I need it uh, now and at all costs. And uh, well, Perhaps not at all costs, but you know, I, I feel, okay, let's talk about pregnancy just a, yeah. a little, you know, uh, you normally go to the doctor when something's wrong mm-hmm. um, and your heart keeps pumping year after year and your kidneys and all of those things work really well year after year after year and you only rarely go to the doctor and the one exception is pregnancy you know and pregnancy is central to reproduction Mm -hmm. but if you're pregnant uh, you start preparing for the worst you start Mm -hmm. going to obstetricians or whatever we now do births in hospital just in case something would go Mm -hmm. uh, Wrong, and why is that? You know, if if producing a baby is so central to reproductive uh, Mm -hmm. fitness, why doesn't pregnancy work much more efficiently? And why does it hurt so damn much? Why does it hurt so (laughs) much? And and the reason is parent-offspring conflict. That you know, those other organ systems are working within a genetically homogeneous body, and so they all work together um, to enhance your fitness. The problem in pregnancy is you've got this interaction between relatives, and relatives have some genes in common, some common interests, but some genes different, some difference, and we have this conflict. The fetus is attempting to get a little bit more from mother that's restrained by the mother. But the consequence of this is that there is a breakdown of communication and the feedback controls between um, the mother and embryo, and so the the physiology of pregnancy, I think, is inherently unstable because of this inability to to send um, messages backwards and forwards between hmm. mother and fetus. Just a, because there's sort of an incentive
0: to cheat, basically, to, in a way
1: to, that... to deceive, to send misleading. um yeah. you know, the the mother, if if there were a way that the mother could signal to to the fetus, uh, just lay off your demands. Um, Mm-hmm. Now, um, I really need to be doing something, uh, yeah. else, um, mothers will be selected to send that in situations when the fetus could do with just a little bit extra and the fetus will be selected to discount maternal signals. Mm-hmm. And so you have a general breakdown of, um, communication. And so the reason why I think things go wrong so often in, um, pregnancy is because of this breakdown of evolutionary um, evolutionary trust.
0: That's really interesting. So basically, if we could all just communicate better, then and trust each other that the information that we're getting is actually reliable, yeah. then well, there wouldn't you know, be as much of a problem.
1: There wouldn't be <laughs> uh, now. You can you can find nice examples where you have live birth and you have no genetic difference. Uh, so a nice example of that are aphids, those mm. little insects that grow on plants. So um, they're um, and the mother gives live birth. And in fact, you can find within an, within an aphid, you can find within the female embryos sitting with the mothers in their ovaries, they're already forming. Um, their female offspring and it's like Russian dolls. You can (laughs) find embryos within embryos within um, embryos. Mm. And as far as I know, you don't have these complex um, placental structures developed there because these are, you know, genetically identical. Interestingly, when an aphid becomes sexual, Mm -hmm. so it's going to produce an offspring that's genetically different from its mother. Then it produces an egg. It gets them out of the body. And so the, oh. the sexual offspring develop out of eggs. And it's only when they're reproducing asexually that they... That they're they, willing to do it inside, uh, right? Inside. Yeah. yeah. That's it seems a sensible arrangement. Yeah, um, yeah.
0: So um, maybe we could talk just a little bit about the sort of maternal-paternal conflict. Because we've sort of been talking about maternal-fetal yeah. conflict, but really, you know, underlying that the reason that there is maternal fetal conflict is because there are paternal genes that are making up half of that fetus, right? Yeah. 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 So in a way. So this to, is
1: how I got into pregnancy. Yeah. Etch, in the <laughs> So going back to the, the question uh, originally, before yes. I got distracted from talking about uh, seed development. And so I, I, I was interested in seed development in the different roles of, maternal and paternal genes within the the developing seed and the base because, um, a mother plant will often be having seeds with many different fathers, mm-hmm. um, the theory seemed to predict to me that, uh, genes of paternal origin would be selected to demand more from mothers mm-hmm. because they were competing with alternative fathers so, so than genes of plants maternal. Plants
0: are like super promiscuous is what you're saying. Oh, uh, sometimes.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It depends on plants. Okay. You know, there are uh, there there are uh, some some plants who um, evangelical Christian. Well, no, let's not go there because uh, I, I've known of evangelical Christians who are super promiscuous, but that okay. is a different uh, different issue. But um, you know, they have multiple. Um, it's the mothers providing the nutrients in the plant but yeah. it's be there's competition among different paternal um, genes, right. and so. Uh, this, I think, accounts for a phenomenon that gets called genomic imprinting, which is genes of different, uh, maternal and paternal genes doing different things within the embryo and sometimes in conflict with each other. Right. So they sort of,
0: in a way, know, I'm putting scare quotes, if they came from the mother or the father, because there's different... They're marked in some way. Yeah, they have. Yeah. It's like there's little tags on them. Little that tags of, yeah.
1: that says, "I come from a mum or dad." Yeah, but it's it's got to be an erasable tag because yeah. the the genes I get from my mum, uh, my children are getting from their right. their dads. So even though that gene had a maternal tag in me, it's got to get a paternal tag yeah. in my. And then kind right.
0: of depending on whether the tag from mom or dad is there, the genes will get expressed differently. So they'll yeah, be like yeah. more exploitative of the mom or less, right? That's so the well, basic we, idea.
1: You know, like so they're, they're, they're rare um, human embryos that are triploid that get um, two sets of genes from one parent and only one from the other parent. Mm-hmm. And they come in two different kinds. There are diagynic triploids, they get two sets of genes from mum and one from dad, and they have a really small placenta. Hmm. Whereas there are diandric triploids who get two sets of genes from dad and one from mum, and they have a large Hmm. um, placenta. Hmm. And so this is some evidence that in placental development, uh, genes, genes that the placenta gets from its mother are tending to restrain placental growth, whereas genes it gets from its father are tending to enhance placental growth. Now there's a a a, a peculiar kind of pregnancy which, for historical reasons, is called a hydatidiform mole. Okay, this is not a little burrowing creature. It's it's from mole as in molecule as as a mass. But uh, essentially, a woman becomes pregnant. um, She starts to grow large rapidly. Now, at ultrasound. All that's sitting in the um, uterus is a massively proliferating placenta. Wow, really? Pumping out lots and lots of these hormones into the mother. She can have severe nausea, all of these symptoms. Wow. And those conceptuses turn out to have no genes from the mother except for their mitochondria. What? Um, There's a fertilised egg. It's been fertilised by two sperm. Somehow the... um, somehow the maternal chromosomes have been eliminated. So you're just looking at the effects of paternal um, chromosomes. And so what you've got is a massively proliferating placenta and they have a very high frequency after these so-called molar pregnancies, what is called choriocarcinoma, which is a really, really nasty cancer and it's unusual cancer. This is zombie stuff because it's not from the mother's own body. It's derived from the um, oh. offspring, the placental tissues, and they become cancerous and they're highly invasive, and invading wow. uh, maternal tissues. And before um, modern chemotherapy, uh, this was essentially a death sentence for a for a woman. Uh, wow! You know, ninety eight percent mortality within hmm. within five years. Wow. It turns out it's uh, quite a treatable cancer because. Um, the cancer cells give themselves away because they're um, they're placental cells and they're producing those pregnancy hormones and so they allow um, you to detect whether you've got rid of all of the mm. all of the um, hmm. cells. Also fortunately um, placental cells turned, turned out to be quite sensitive to some chemotherapeutic um, mm. reagents. So hmm. this was a universally fatal cancer which now most women who get it um, Survive, but it's an example. It's 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 showing very clearly that uh, paternally derived genes coming from the father really, really promoting invasion of maternal tissues. So it
0: sort of answers the question of like, if two males actually wanted to have an offspring that was just you know had no maternally imprinted genes in it, it would just be a giant placenta, basically. That's right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, (laughs) Sorry, sorry to the same-sex male couples yeah. out there, but there are a few few problems, aren't there? Yeah, uh, we we, uh, we we know of um, you can experimentally produce um, embryos that only have maternal genes, um, and they actually produce most tissues of the embryo. But what they don't produce is the uh, placenta.
0: Mm, um, is this like done in um, mouse models? That and can
1: stuff? be done in mouse models, yeah. but the. Uh, the, the natural pathological uh, example of it is what are called ovarian teratomas. Mm. Uh, so these affect um, women. They're when a, an oocyte, um, an egg, starts mm-hmm. to develop without fertilisation, so it doesn't have any paternally derived mm. genes. And these are they're called teratomas. Teratos is the uh-huh. uh, Greek for a, a monster. Mm. Um, they produce. Or, all the tissues of an embryo, they produce teeth and they can produce hairs um, developing in the yeah. ovary. So they're pretty ugly looking uh, things, uh-huh. but fortunately they're not um, invasive because they don't produce uh, trophoblastic, uh, that's placental tissues. Huh. And so um, they're a benign tumor in that sense. They're not a metastatic mm. invasive um, tumor. And so they're, they're a hint of what happens if you only have maternal genes. Um, they can produce most of the tissues of the body, yeah. but they can't can't produce the feeding structure, the placenta. Two
0: totally different kinds of monsters, basically. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Cool. Yeah. So we, we've talked of many zombies yeah. here. Yeah. So All
0: right. Well, so a very last question then. So if you take maternal fetal conflict yeah. and the the mechanisms you know that underlie the sort of zombification of like you know the fetus hijacking the maternal systems so the question is what is the zombie apocalypse of this kind of zombification of fetuses or offspring in general hijacking their parents to invest in them like what does that look like is that a, a good world is that a bad world what what um, happens if we take it to the extreme?
1: I've never watched the zombie movie in my life. So I'm really <laughs> uninformed about, uh, zombie apocalypses. I, I, I hear that it's a genre out there. Yeah. Um, you know, the, like, what, what's we, the we have evolved to, um, successfully produce offspring yeah. and, um, and offspring survival depends upon having in humans healthy, uh, Parents, all in all, and so it works pretty well. Most of the, mm-hmm. you know, I can, yeah. uh, I I could give you an example, you know, of um, there's a little uh, little beetle larva um, called Micromalthus, um, mm-hmm. perfect name, mm-hmm. uh, and um, there, you know, the um, the male male offspring actually, um, the description in the paper I read was, after he hatches out he sticks his mouth he sticks his head into his mother's gentle orifice and eats her oh. and so you know there's wow. a situation where the mother is consumed by her offspring right.
0: soon after birth yeah. so
1: that would be That's... the zombie apocalypse taking over I
0: see so it's like it's not just like you know more health issues during pregnancy and all of that it's basically like Offspring eating their parents. At Uh, least that's what a comparative zoological approach would tell us. Is that's the zombie apocalypse? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: She, she generally, you know, and and actually, it's appropriate in Micromalthus, the mother who is just a beetle grub. She never actually matures. Produces lots of daughters um, asexually because you don't want to produce many sons um, because once you produce that son, he's going to uh, (laughs) consume you. Uh, So yeah, yeah. Female bias sex ratios are are good for uh, micromalthus.
0: Okay, so in the sort of zombie apocalypse of you know, we could off, be, yeah, yeah, we'll have some sort of a, a bias sex ratio potentially. Yeah, it
1: yeah, could could you know if um, if offspring ate their parents, yeah, uh, we'd soon run out of parents. Uh, you know, right. because it takes two parents to produce one offspring, and yeah. it's the path to extinction. And it's possible that there are species that we don't know about that succumb to the zombie apocalypse oh. and they're just not here now yes
0: children be nice to your parents otherwise you might go extinct yes. right right yeah thank you, <laughs> thank you so much for yep. being here with us today and if the whole world says i will cry, Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. Thank you to the Department of Psychology, the Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative, and the President's Office at ASU. Also, a big thanks to the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics, also at ASU. Thank you to all of the brains that helped make this podcast to Tal Rahm, who does our sound, Neil Smith, our illustrator. Lemmy, the creator of the song, Psychological, and a big thanks to our Z-team at ASUR Undergrad, Zombie Apocalypse, Zombified Team. You can follow us and support us um, by going on Twitter and Instagram. We are Zombified Pod. On Facebook, we are Zombified Podcast. And our website is zombified.org. You can support us on Patreon. Um, We are totally educational and we have no ads. So um, we rely on support from our listeners. And uh, if you can afford a dollar a month, or maybe even five, um, we would be very appreciative. You can also support us by buying merchandise, t-shirts, stickers, you can find them all on our website, zombify.org. And don't forget, there's another super easy way for you to support us. Go and uh, review us, give us um, an awesome review, or if you actually don't want to give us an awesome review, just tell us what you think. Um, and you can do that on Apple Podcasts where uh, a lot of people will get the chance to see it. So uh, as I do at the end of every episode, I want to share some of my brains. And um, this time I'm going to talk a little bit about a um, connection to some work that I am doing um, with a graduate student of mine. So when um, David talks about theories of pregnancy cravings, um, he made some references to uh, old theory and uh, a theory that has been around for a long time that uh, aversions in pregnancy have to do with um, mothers avoiding toxins in um vegetables and, and um, things like that. And so I just wanted to offer some uh, newer thoughts on this um, that actually dovetail with maternal fetal conflict, as well as the pregnancy cravings issue. So I think it's super appropriate for this episode. All right, so here goes. What we know in terms of the evidence, um, it's clear that the, the previous theories about pregnancy cravings and aversions don't really hold up. There's no solid evidence for the hypothesis that nausea is about avoiding plant toxins. In fact, meat um, and non-alcoholic beverages, uh, like coffees and teas and stuff, were found to be the most aversive in uh, the studies that have been done. Um, And fruits and sweets were the foods that were most craved. And there isn't really a good existing explanation for why these patterns are in place. Now, my graduate student, Jessica Ayers, and I um, are actually looking at food choice in pregnancy because we think that maternal-fetal conflict might underlie some aspects of it. So here is the idea. Maybe um, cravings for things like fruit and sweets are actually a manifestation of the fetus sort of trying to get the mother to consume food that provide quick and easy sources of sugar for the fetus, while the fetus extracts limiting nutrients like calcium from the maternal body. And it turns out that fetuses actually have access to all sorts of um, the sort of machinery of how uh, hunger and satiety work. So the mechanisms are there that it's possible. Um, So... But right now, we we don't know for sure. We're in the process of um, collecting data. Um, so stay tuned. I mean, right now we have some interesting preliminary results, actually, that suggest that both cravings and aversions to foods that we call fetal-favoring foods, like sweets, um, that um, those are associated with pregnancy complications like high blood pressure and preeclampsia. And we know um, that those pregnancy complications stem from maternal-fetal conflict, as we talked about with David Haig in this episode, and a lot of his work has um, really illuminated that there are pregnancy complications that result from maternal-fetal conflict. So stay tuned, and thank you for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains I know it's crazy but it seems so logical I can't deny that there is something supernatural
1: with you makes me act the way